Nice to hear all the happy voices as they're heading out to their class, so that's a great. And thank you to all of you ladies who are uh, involved in uh, doing some of the teaching for our, for our young people. Well, we're rolling along through our study of Daniel. We're still in chapter 7. This is our third week in chapter 7. And uh, we might even have a fourth week in chapter 7. There's still a couple of other issues that we could develop. And what a, what a rich passage of Scripture in Daniel 7. So it's, uh, it's, it's an, amazing, an amazing text, and we've been kind of taking pieces of it at a time and looking at various themes in it. We'll be looking at another one today as well. But I want you to remember just by way of introduction, in, in the, the famous passage in the Gospel of John, Chapter 14, the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. So Jesus very clearly promised that he would prepare a place for those who followed him. And he said one day he would return to take them to the place that he had prepared. Forty days after Jesus' resurrection, he ascended back up into heaven. As many of you know, he was in the sight of his disciples. That's recorded for us in Acts chapter 1. He was taken up into the clouds, Acts 1 tells us. And while the disciples stood there watching, staring up into the clouds, two angels stood by them and said, You men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, the angel said, Jesus is going to return in the clouds just like you saw him ascend into heaven. So the promise of the return of Christ has been a a blessed hope of the Lord's people for 2,000 years. As the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 2.3, he said, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we often call that the return of Christ, the, the blessed hope, the blessed confidence that we have that He's coming back. Unfortunately, the blessed hope has led many down through the centuries to try to predict the precise moment of when Jesus is going to come back. Despite the fact that Jesus said in Matthew 24, no man knows the day or the hour of his return, there have still been hundreds of date setters over the the centuries. In our uh, recent history, there have been two notable date setters. A NASA engineer named Edgar, I believe his last name is pronounced Wisenant or Wisenant, he, he published a book a number of years ago called 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. People were mailing those all over the place in bulk mailings. Uh, we got one in the mail in the, in the fall of 1988. Obviously, uh, uh, he was incorrect. Uh, his 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988 obviously have not panned out. Even more recently, Harold Camping, who was also an engineer... And I'm not sure why the engineers like to do this. I think they're just really good at crunching numbers. And so it becomes, I think, enticing to calculate and predict. But anyway, Harold Camping, who also was an engineer by, by his career, and the, the, the founder of what, was, what is called Family Radio, he first predicted that Jesus Christ would return in 1994. 
And when that didn't happen, he revised his calculations, and he came up with the date of May 21st, 2011. And then he later adjusted the date date to October 22nd of 2011. And in May of, of 2011, after selling a couple of radio stations, Family Radio owned dozens of stations, they sold a couple of radio stations in California for tens of millions of dollars. They had this huge windfall of cash, and Harold Camping spent $100 million blitzing the United States to warn everyone to be ready for Christ's return. He reportedly bought 3,000 billboards and an untold number of advertising spots on park benches and bus stop benches. He funded a five-vehicle caravan that traveled all over the country distributing pamphlets and warning people to be ready. Jesus would return in October of 2011. The caravan came through our area. I didn't see the caravan, but I saw pictures of it in the local newspapers. Made the news for a day or two. There was some national coverage of Harold Camping's prediction. Obviously, he was incorrect. Mr. Wisenunt passed away in 2001. Harold Camping passed away in 2013, and obviously, we're still here. So as we look at prophetic passages, and we see things coming to pass that must occur before the second coming of Christ, we must realize that these signs of the times, as we call them, that they are not giving us a precise date for Jesus' return. They are simply letting us know that it's getting close. Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, talking about the end times, he said, when these things begin to come to pass, and you can look at the context in Luke 21 and see what all the these things are, but he said, when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption is drawing near. World events and the way they unfold cannot be predicted precisely. We all know that. So we will never be so foolish as to turn into date setters. Jesus said no one except God the Father knows the precise day. And as we've seen in past weeks, we've talked about God being omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipotent, meaning He's all-powerful. So God alone can make predictions of the future that are 100% accurate. He knows everything, and He controls everything, so He can make happen whatever He wants to make happen, whenever He wants to make it happen. But we must also realize that the message of the second coming of Christ is a very common Bible theme. Some very sharp students of the Bible who have done some amazing research tell us that prophecy occupies about one-fifth of all Scripture in the Old and New Testament. Almost 20% of all Scripture is prophetic in nature. Regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, there are about, they have counted these, 333 specific prophecies about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. 109 of them, they say, were fulfilled by Jesus during His first coming, And the other 224 are yet to be fulfilled at His second coming. So there are at least 224 prophecies related to the return of Christ. And next to the subject of faith, there is no subject more discussed in the New Testament than the second coming of Christ. We have a record in the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself personally referring to His return 21 times. And over 50 times, we are told to be ready for it. 
So while we are not date setters, we are also not blind to what's going on. One more issue that we need to clarify in our minds regarding the second coming is that we often refer to the rapture and the second coming in the same sort of way. But they are distinct events. There are signs of the second coming to alert us that it's getting close. But there are no signs necessary for the rapture. We presume that the rapture and the second coming are not separated by hundreds of years because of the way they're spoken of, but but there are no signs necessary for the rapture to occur. You may remember, we won't take the time to read it today because we're going to be reading a number of other things here in Daniel 7, but you, you remember the passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and following up to the end of the chapter. Remember the Apostle Paul talked about the Lord Jesus Christ coming in the clouds and us being caught up to meet Him in the air. He says, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then Paul says, we who are alive and remain. Interesting thought, the Apostle Paul writing, we who are alive and remain. Paul expected that he might live to see the rapture. You see that same concept in many of Paul's letters. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, when we shall see him, we shall be like him. And he's talking about the coming of Christ. John expected that he might live to see the rapture. And we could study this for hours in many sermons, but let me just give you briefly just a few differences between the rapture and the second coming. At the rapture, Jesus will return for his bride, the New Testament church. At his second coming, he returns with his bride, the New Testament church. We see that in the scriptures. At the rapture, Jesus will not descend to the earth. We are caught up to meet him in the air. But at the second coming, the Bible says he is going to descend to the Mount of Olives as he begins his earthly kingdom. He's going to destroy the armies of the world at the Battle of Armageddon. He's going to rescue Israel from almost certain destruction. He's going to set up his earthly kingdom. That's at his second coming. But at the rapture, he says, we meet him in the air. He does not come to earth. At the rapture, Jesus is going to bring a blessing for his saints. At the second coming, he's going to bring judgment to those who have rejected him. The rapture is the removal of believers from the earth as an act of deliverance. The second coming involves the removal of unbelievers as an act of judgment in preparation for the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. We believe, or I believe, I trust you believe it as well, that the rapture will occur before God pours out his judgment on the earth during the Great Tribulation. There are many Bible-believing people, I have told you this before, who do not believe that. Uh, But I believe that the pre-tribulation rapture provides the best explanation to understand end times prophecy. It makes the best sense to me as I read and study the end times. We could spend hours on this. We won't this morning. We probably will in some future weeks. I won't say any more than what we've already said. But but the, the rapture and the second coming are definitely related. But they are not identical events. And there are no signs, nothing that has to occur before the rapture. The Apostle Paul called the rapture a mystery, meaning something that was not revealed in the Old Testament. The rapture was not revealed until God revealed it to the Apostle Paul, and he taught it in his epistles, in his letters. So as we look at Daniel chapter 7, it is the second coming 
that is being viewed by Daniel. Daniel knew nothing of the rapture. God didn't, God didn't reveal that until he revealed it to the Apostle Paul. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians, Behold, I show you a mystery. This is something that God had not revealed to the Old Testament, the rapture that Paul was speaking of. But in Daniel 7, Daniel knew nothing of the rapture. He's looking at the second coming, this second coming of the Messiah, the Son of Man. And we see in this chapter the, the sequence of events, the flow of world history that's going to culminate in the earthly kingdom of Christ. Two weeks ago, we saw the crowning of the king. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is going to receive an everlasting kingdom from God the Father, the Ancient of Days. And all who are His saints, who've been made holy by faith in Jesus Christ, are going to possess the kingdom with Him forever and ever. Last week we examined a description of the, of the, of the future kingdom of Christ. Those four descriptive words that we saw in chapter 7 and verse 14. Authority and honor and worldwide and everlasting. That's what the kingdom of Jesus Christ is going to look like. He'll have all authority. He will be honored. It will be worldwide and it will last forever. Today we want to see the timing of the kingdom. When is it coming? And please don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the date. Okay? <laughs> God reveals to Daniel the flow of world history and what's going to happen in the governments of the world as history moves toward this future kingdom of Christ. So let's read together here in Daniel chapter 7. Let's read together the first eight verses. You can follow along as I read. And then we'll look at some other passages as well uh, in the, later on in this, uh, in, uh, at the end of the chapter. But Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The, and four great beasts came up from the seas, or from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. It's like he grew out of that head and shoved out three of the other horns. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. We have already seen in our study of Daniel 2 this great flow of, or the same flow of world empires. In chapter 2, God gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream of this great statue. Many of you were here with us for that. The gold head, the silver chest and arms, the bronze belly and thighs, the iron, uh, the iron legs and feet that were, that were an iron clay mix. Then the stone rises up out of the mountain and crushes them all and fills the earth. 
Yeah, that was the that was the Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel two. That was man's perspective on the kingdoms of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. Man's man's empires are impressive to man. This huge awesome statue made of precious metals gleaming in the sun and awe-inspiring and i'm sure nebuchadnezzar's thinking wow look at that look at that incredible image and this great thing and i'm the head of gold and it's great see that was man's perspective on his empires i believe in this chapter we see god's perspective on man's empires that man's empires are like a bunch of animals devouring each other without mercy In chapter 2, we see man's ego and arrogance when he looks at himself. In chapter 7, we see from God's perspective, man's ruthless, merciless, greedy, self-centered wickedness. The sea throughout the scripture typically pictures uh, Gentile nations of the earth. Always changing, often stormy, mysterious, frequently scary. The great sea would be the Mediterranean. Uh, that's, that's, who, that's what Daniel would be speaking of. Uh, these empires are, are coming up, rising up out of the Gentile world. And looking back in history, we can easily see Babylon. Archaeologists tell us that there were winged lions in statues and carvings all over Babylon. I'm sure that Daniel saw them every day. Verse 4 seems to be describing Nebuchadnezzar's humbling before God, the wings plucked off, and then eventually a man's heart is given to him or given back to him. You remember that event from chapter 4. Then the beast that's like a bear. In keeping with the vision of chapter 2, that would be the Medo-Persian Empire. You know, there are 13 references to bears in the Bible, and they are almost always pictured as ferocious and violent, voracious appetites, and so he says, he says to this beast, arise and devour much flesh. And the Persians conquered land all the way from modern day Greece to the western boundary of modern day India. Now, this massive empire that, that, that lasted just over 200 years. The Persians quickly dominated the Medes, then they overran three smaller kingdoms, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. So most Bible scholars think as the bears lifted up on one side, as the Persians overcame the power of the Medes, the three ribs in its mouth would be those three kingdoms they overran, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. And then the leopard with four wings, we know, would have to represent the Greek empire of Alexander the Great with an army of about 35,000, which was very, very small in the ancient world. The armies of the Persians had 200,000 or more. Uh, The armies of of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, well over 100,000. But the army of Alexander the Great, only 35,000, and yet he conquered everything that Persia had in 13 years. He moved fast. He had ingenious strategies, no mercy. He overran the entire Persian Empire by the time he was 33 years old. He was, he was like a leopard, moving fast, even with four wings, moving faster. He had these lightning strikes. He would, he would crush one kingdom, move on to the next one, crush that kingdom, move on to the next one, crush that one. With his, with his 35-man army, he, he gave, in fact, he defeated the Persians who, who, had, who had an army uh, who, that was five times the size of his. But notice at the end of verse 6, it says, Dominion was given to it. 
In other words, Alexander didn't win all those battles because he was so smart and ingenious. He won all those battles because it was God's plan. Dominion was given to him. And and so, in fact, very interestingly, after that 13 years was over, he'd conquered the whole world. He was 33 years old. He got sick and he died. And on his deathbed, he divided his kingdom into four sections and he gave them to four of his generals. Thus we have the four-headed leopard with the four wings. But in verse 7, Daniel becomes quite troubled. Because the fourth beast that he sees is unlike any of the others. He didn't even describe it as looking like some animal that he was aware of. The first beast, it was a, it was a lion with, with, with wings. The second beast, it was a bear with some ribs in its mouth. The third beast looked like a leopard with four heads and four wings. But now this fourth beast, he didn't even know what that looked like. He didn't even try to describe it as some other animal that he was aware of. He just called it dreadful, terrible, and strong. It had iron teeth. It was ripping everything apart and then stomping on the pieces. You can visualize that in your mind. This big, voracious-looking animal comes up and he, and he starts tearing everything apart. And, and, and as he shreds everything, he stomps on the pieces on the ground. The iron, of course, would tip us off. This is Roman, according to chapter 2. And uh, you, you may remember from chapter 2 that uh, Rome's armies were called the Iron Legions of Rome. But then Daniel says, but then ten horns came out of its head. And then another little horn grew out of the head and pushed out three of the other horns. And that horn had, had a man's eyes and a big mouth. In other words, he was speaking impressive things, pompous Speaking pompous, great pompous words, patting himself on the back and just speaking great things. We'll see a little bit further explanation of that in, in, in a little bit. But then, the Ancient of Days brings judgment. The Son of Man has given the kingdom that the saints share in. The, the little horn with the pompous mouth gets destroyed. But in verses 15 to 21, Daniel is very upset. He wants to know the truth about the fourth kingdom. What is this this dreadful beast this, this with the ten heads and, and the little head, the little horn that comes out of the head? I mean, I mean, what in the world? I'm sorry, not the ten heads, the ten horns. Well, let's read it here in chapter or chapter seven, verse fifteen. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to those who stood by. I presume there was a group of angels possibly watching this vision with Daniel. And I asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. That we, Of course, we see that in chapter 2. We understand that. Four kings and kingdoms. You can't have a king. You can't be a king without a kingdom. And so these four kings arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom, possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. 
I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. And so then he says, verse 23, Thus he said, meaning the angel, who we presume is standing with Daniel as he watched this vision, he explains a few more things to him, and he says, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. Ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and after shall rise another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Interesting, the word translated in our New King James, persecute, that, that Hebrew word means to wear out. He will wear out the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Uh, the Aramaic word there, translated time, means a definite period of time. And based on other passages of Scripture, we're quite certain that the time, the designated time, is a year. And then times, two years, and then half a year. So you got one year plus two years plus half a year. Three and a half years. So the saints will be given into his hand for three and a half years. But the court shall be seated. They shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's try to unpack what this incredible, amazing vision is that Daniel, as he was watching this, was so awestruck by. We're going to call this final world kingdom imperialism. You got Babylon, you got Persia, you got Greece, and then you've got this fourth kingdom we're going to call imperialism. Rome was part of it, but it goes even beyond that. Imperialism is, is the desire to conquer and control, to colonize, to dominate. Babylon, Persia, and Greece, they, they, they conquered nations, but then they allowed those nations to rule themselves and just pay taxes to the empire. But when Rome conquered nations, they colonized them. They set up their own Roman governors to rule the conquered people. They, they, they were dominating. They were harsh. They were, they were, they were the, the dreadful beasts that ripped everything apart and stomped on the pieces. And th this imperialistic government so far has gone through two stages, as we saw in chapter 2. Remember the iron legs that we had the two... The, the two legs, and then it went to the feet and the ten toes. We see something similar here as well. This imperialistic government has gone through two stages. The unified stage, the first stage, was what we would call the old Roman Empire, which lasted from about 63 B.C. to 364 A.D. It lasted for about 400 years. This is the empire that crucified tens of thousands of people, including the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Peter. 
This is the empire that, 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 that dominated everything that we know today as Europe and the Middle East and Northern Africa. The unified Roman Empire. Then in AD 364, the year 364, a Roman Empire divided the empire into the Eastern Roman Empire, which became what historians call the Byzantine Empire, with the capital of Constantinople in what's now in modern-day Turkey, and the Western Roman Empire, which historians call the Holy Roman Empire, with the capital being in Rome, Italy. Now, I'm not going to spend the next while boring you with a bunch of European history and dates and names, but, but, the, but these two branches of imperialistic power have evolved and developed in various ways, and they still exist today. The Roman Empire, the, the imperialistic concept behind Rome that started in 63 BC is still with us today. We have gone through many, many stages and many, and, and, and many, uh, I would say it, it, it's involved, it's evolved into many different branches. But it's still here. We have a, an eastern axis of power and a western axis of power all connected to those two sections of Europe. But there's coming a third stage that Daniel speaks of and a fourth stage according to verses 23 and 24. There's going to be ten rulers who are going to dominate the whole earth. That's stage three. And then one ruler is going to push out three of them, and he's going to dominate all of them. If you are familiar with much Bible prophecy, you recognize that the little horn, the one that comes up and pushes out the other ones here in, in, in Daniel 7, you see in other passages of Scripture, you'll see in Daniel 9, we see in the book of Revelation, that little horn is who we call the Antichrist. He is going to speak arrogant words against God. He's going to persecute his people. He's going to wear out the saints, and God is going to allow him to do that for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Then he's going to be judged and destroyed, and the Son of Man is going to set up his kingdom, and he's going to give it to the saints. There's a lot more development of this teaching later in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. But, but, but for today, I just want you to think of imperialism in its four stages. The unified stage, the, the eastern and western branch, and this third stage, which is going to arise. These ten horns are going to come out of the head of this, of this incredible beast. And then the one little horn is going to push out three of them, and he's going to dominate them all. So you say, okay, Larry, I'm all totally confused. I'm thinking, what in the world are you talking about? Let's go one step further. What are we to be watching for, you may ask? What we can expect in coming years is we can expect a global government whose authority is divided into ten regions of the world. That's the form of world government from which the Antichrist is going to arise. There's going to be this global government, and the authority in the global government is going to be divided in ten ways. That's what Daniel says is going to happen. We see similar things in the book of Revelation. And I just, I, I don't know how much reading you do on these things, but do you know that there is an organization founded in 1968, a group of globalists, very rich, very powerful. 
that acts as a research institute on political, social, economic issues. And this is a direct quote from that, from that organization. They say, this is a quote, there is no other viable alternative to the future survival of mankind than a new global community under a single form of government. They said that in 1973. What's happening today, global economy, global money. I mean, I've been getting emails galore, all kinds of things. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to change. They, they've got currency laid out to have, to have a one world currency. They've got the world economic forum that's running these things. They've got the world banking system. It, it's, it's all in place. And in September of 1973, this same organization published a report they titled the, the Regionalized and Adaptive Model of the Global World System in which they detailed their plan that they did in 1973 to divide the world into ten economic political regions that they called kingdoms. I, that's their word, not mine. Which would unite the entire world under a common leadership, a, a one-world global government. The world kingdom was dropped from their later reports, but, but much of what you and I see happening today around the world is the development of this very thing that God told Daniel about 2,500 years ago. Globalism is on the march. I do not know the exact timing of all this. No one does, but you can watch for it. It is coming. The plan is in place. Globalism is being developed. It is a terrible beast imperialistic, dominating, ruthless, determined, but praise God, we know the end of the story. Verse 27 is the end of the story. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Praise God for the end of the story. But there is a lot of trouble between now and and then, a lot of trouble. Globalism is on the march. It's coming. The plans are in place. The infrastructure is developed. It is going to be an authoritarian, imperialistic, dominating, ruthless, determined bunch of people who want to totally control the world and in their mind save the planet from destruction. But God is going to come the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come after his time of judgment on the earth and he's going, to, he's going to bring in his kingdom. I want to close today with a reading from 2 Peter chapter 3. If you would take a look there, 2 Peter chapter 3. Just a couple of verses and I'll be wound up here in just a second. And someone's probably thinking, you sound have wound up the whole sermon, Larry, so okay. All right. <laughs> First Peter 3. <clears throat> and then one final challenge. Me. The first, I'm, I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter 3. My apologies. Second Peter chapter 3. I'm going to begin to read in verse 10. I'm going to read up to verse 14. Second Peter 3, 10 to 14. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, everything we have, all temporary, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. Well-known missionary C.T. Studd passed away almost a hundred years ago. English missionary and a great poet. He wrote this poem. I referred to it in our prayer time just a moment ago. Only one life will soon be passed. Let me read it to you as we end up today. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each of its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say, Thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, Twas worth it all. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for Thee. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Lord, we know that as we think of these coming events, which we certainly see on the horizon very clearly, it certainly can be cause for fear. And our comfortable world and comfortable circles that we operate in could be very, very soon turned inside out and upside down and very topsy-turvy. And although, Lord, we do believe that you are going to come to get us in the rapture prior to the seven-year Great Tribulation, we also know that that does not mean that there will not be a lot of tribulation before that time begins. And as globalism begins to sweep the planet as it already is doing, and as the plans of the globalist elites continue to unfold and as they continue to bring to pass what they think they need to do to save this planet, 
We know, Lord, that there will be many of the people of God who may be caught up in many tumultuous circumstances, in great trials and some difficulties. But we know, Lord, that in the end, the Son of Man is going to come in power and glory. He's going to destroy the nation, or all the armies of the world and these nations who have risen up and shaken their fist in the face of God. And He's going to set up His earthly kingdom. And we who know You as our Savior will rule and reign with You. So Lord, help us as we look at these, these globalist events that are taking place. May we not be afraid, but may we stand with great courage for, and, and great boldness for the things of God. And may we remember, Lord, that regardless of what the circumstances may be, you will never forget our labor of love, as Hebrews chapter 6 tells us. And we only have one life. May we, Lord, give it to you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. May we remind ourselves of that every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.